Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, May 8th, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. This is an audio podcast, as I'm sure you're all well aware. Whether you're tuning in through earbuds on the subway or listening on your computer speakers, the sound waves are bouncing off your eardrums and those vibrations are turned into signals that are processed by neurons in your brain. Our sense of hearing has an interesting evolutionary and anthropological history. This week, we bring you the last of our SNC Science of the Five Senses series. McGill University perception expert Dan Levitin teams up with Roseanne Cash, a Grammy-winning singer and songwriter. Together, they talk about music and the brain. But not just yet. The Science of Hearing closed out our Science in the City event series for 2008-2009. An event series that brought you some of the biggest names in sensory science, along with some of the most influential artists in the field as well. We saw a lot of you at the events, and for those of you who couldn't attend, you may be tuned into our podcasts. Science in the City is a non-profit program that needs your support. We rely on your contributions to fund our event series, our weekly podcasts, and the SNC website and calendar. This season was our most successful season ever, and we'd like to keep building on that. We're planning our fall 2009 events right now, and your support is vital in making sure that we can bring you that programming. To make a tax-deductible donation to Science in the City, log on to scienceandthecity.org donate. And from all of us here at Science in the City, thank you. Well, we're delighted to be here. What we thought we would do is sort of talk together about music and the brain and art in general if we get there. And one of the things that I think all of us take for granted is that we have a brain that functions. We assume that it's going to do its job. I mean, you, you wake up in the morning and you haven't had your cup of coffee and you realize that the circuits aren't quite firing right. But more or less, it works the way it's supposed to. And then every once in a while, it doesn't. And Maybe you could share uh, what happened to you about a year ago. Well, I would only share it with this particular audience, actually. It's not something I'd really spoken publicly about. But um, I had brain surgery 16 months ago, and um, it wasn't a tumor. I had a structural abnormality in my brain that was getting worse over time and causing uh, really debilitating headaches, among other symptoms. So I consulted with five neurosurgeons. If I'd known you were a neurosurgeon, I would have called you up at the time, but I, I didn't get actually, that part. I, no, I just teach neurosurgery. It's different. Oh. <laughs> you know, those that can't do To teach, teach that, what right. they don't, right. It's like gym, gym teachers, right? Right. Um, <laughs> but I con- did consult with five top neurosurgeons, and they all said, yes, you, you absolutely have to have surgery. So... I had it at Columbia. Very you nice what, surgeon. What you have, what you had actually, I, I read about. I have also. Uh, I have it, what's called an ectopy, which is a part of my cerebellum that's hanging down too low, and it presses against my brainstem. And in my case, uh, there's just about a half a millimeter between them. And if it ever grows and presses too much, I'm going to have to have surgery. But until then, I'm okay. And I was just born that way. I Surgery's think- a breeze. Don't worry. About it. <laughs> <laughs> not. Um, it's not for sissies, I'm telling you. Well, it's similar. I mean, my cerebellum, if it was supposed to be where North Dakota it was, is, it was down by the Yucatan. 
and it was um, pressing against my brainstem as well, but it was way below that. It was 15 millimeters, to be specific. Just and had what a lapse. Were you, what, what were you, <laughs> That's appropriate. What was, you, what, was your, what was one of your biggest fears going into the surgery? Well, the, that's uh, funny you would bring that up. My, one of my biggest fears was that I would lose my... I didn't fear losing my ability to play music. I was afraid of my, that I would lose my ability to feel it. To respond to it. It's interesting you say that because for centuries, I think, well, two centuries anyway, people thought that what the cerebellum was for was for helping to uh, maintain a steady gait when you're walking mm -hmm. or to control muscle movement mm -hmm. and motor action planning. And so you're, this idea that the cerebellum would be um, involved in being able to play music um, is an old one, but in the last 10 years or so, largely due to the work of a guy named, a very clever neurologist named uh, Jeremy Schmaman at Harvard, we've come to realize that the cerebellum is actually essential for emotions and for feeling things. I'm glad I didn't know that before the surgery. I didn't know that. The cerebellum, for those of you that don't know, is a bundle of fibers that's at the back of the brain, back here below the visual cortex. And as I say, mostly we think of it, we in the field, which is many of you, I guess, we think of it as being involved in um, motor control. Yeah. And together with the basal ganglia, if you have Parkinson's disease and that loss of motor ability and walking and um, being able to grip things, all of that is, is mediated in part by the cerebellum. It's believed to contain an internal timer that musicians use. I'm so glad I didn't know this. <laughs> Uh, I would have been apoplectic with worry if I'd known this. Sternberg and others have proposed that what's happening in the cerebellum when you're playing music is that you, uh, the cerebellum contains a system of what they call hierarchical oscillators. In other words, it's like setting a, uh, a top spinning uh, or setting a clock. Uh, and in the cerebellum is this sort of mental clock. And when they talk about it being hierarchical, the idea is when you're playing music, you're aware of where the downbeat is, but you're also aware of where the measure is and where yeah. the phrase is. And there are these systems of embedded clocks in your cerebellum that help you stay on track. This is how conductors are able to adjust the timing. If, if a part goes too fast, they, they slow it down. They have this larger sense of, of how long a phrase is lasting. And That's interesting. I mean, my time has not been affected by it at all. It, it, I was afraid uh, that something would be affected. I actually wrote a letter to Oliver Sacks because yeah. I had met him at a party, and I thought, well, I'm just going to take advantage of that. And um, I said how worried I was about it. And I even mentioned it's a probably an apocryphal story about Quincy Jones when he went in for brain surgery. Just before he went under, he said, don't steal any tunes. <laughs> um, so I told that story to Oliver Sacks, and I said... Basically, my question is, am I going to lose any tunes? And he wrote back this kind of holy relic of a letter typewritten. Oliver writes everything, either longhand or, or on a typewriter. A typewriter, but then he yeah. hand-corrected it yeah. with ink. Yeah. It was so beautiful. And it was a long you know, discussion in the letter. And then he said, but I really can't help you because my specialty is the cortex and your problem is the cerebellum. <laughs> but Specialists. He said, <laughs> yeah. He said... Uh, but I do have an inkling how important this is to you, which I thought was lovely. <laughs> it's, it, it's an interesting uh, launch point for a discussion, I think, because one thing that's interesting about humans is that humans uniquely among species can synchronize to a beat. There's no other mammalian species, anyway, 
uh, it's questionable about birds. You may have seen the snowball video on YouTube, but this is currently being investigated by my colleague, Ani Patel. Snowbird is a cockatoo that apparently can keep a beat to the Backstreet Boys. Not the meat puppets, but <laughs> it's not sure whether that's anomalous. Uh, but humans are the only species, mammalian species anyway, that if, if they hear a sound like this, another human can synchronize to that. Elephants can't do it. Chimpanzees can't do it. They can hold a steady beat, but they can't synchronize with one with another. another and this seems to be subserved by the cerebellum and the timing mechanisms there. When we were playing the other day, we were talking about how we feel rhythm differently. Mm -hmm. And I have the sense that when you're playing the guitar and singing, you've got these nested hierarchies of rhythms. There's mm -hmm. a quarter note, and you've subdivided it into little... I do, and there are some rhythms I, I can't play if I'm in the band, and there are some rhythms they play that I can't play with them. I can sing to it, but I can't play to. It's interesting. And then there are some that feel as natural as walking. Of course, I'm not a great musician. I, I play with great musicians. I, I go by the maxim... Not tonight, you don't. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, you have other stuff. But um, a bass player, when I was first starting out, told me, never put yourself in the position of being the best musician in the band. And I have always remembered that and always followed it. You know, I have too. <laughs> <laughs> we got a problem tonight. <laughs> But we were talking about timing and the cerebellum. The other thing that it raises is this idea that a song could actually be cut out of your brain. And did you actually have that fear? In a metaphorical sense. I mean, I didn't think that I would lose particular songs. I was afraid I would lose my emotional response to particular songs. Yeah. Actually, there's a couple of Beach Boy songs that I would love to lose my emotional response to. <laughs> But that, it didn't work either way for me, so. <laughs> Are you going to tell us which ones? <laughs> it's not in my room, is it? No, no. Not, nobody no. could hate in my right. room. Um, so did they actually cut out a part of No, I, I, in fact, one of the surgeons I went to, they did do that. They um, cauterized, right. And I immediately found another surgeon that, didn't, that thought it was... Um, heretical to even touch the cerebellum, so he was my guy. And what did he end up doing, do you know? Uh, decompression and um, cervical laminectomy. And is it going to last? It should. I'm getting another MRI next month, and we both feel confident that it's, you know, everything's going well. There's this other um, thing, I think, for, you know, lay people who try to figure out what's going on in the brain when you remember something. Mm -hmm. it, it almost feels particularly when, when, when the memory's just out there and you're trying to mm -hmm. grab it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it almost feels like it's in a particular spot and you just have to navigate your, using some force of will, navigate yourself to that spot and then you'll grab it. Or a bucket and a rope. Yeah, just pull it I up. I know, I always say that. Way to haul it up yeah. when somebody remembers it. But I, I think the emerging evidence uh, is that, that even though it feels that way, that isn't really what's going on. What is going on? It's funny you should ask. <laughs> uh, what we think is that, well, let's take perceptual memories to begin with, things that you've heard or seen or smelled, mm -hmm. uh, which is what a lot of our memories are. They're memories of sensory uh, right. experiences. So what is happening when you first perceive the thing is that your neurons are put in some state in a response to seeing that, that red tomato or hearing that car horn or whatever it is, 
And the act of remembering that event is a matter of getting all those neurons that were originally involved in the original perception online again, firing in a similar way, connected to one another in a similar way. And the way to think about it is of the billions of neurons you have, some of them are members of a particular group mm -hmm. associated with that experience. And you have to remember them, bring them back together to membership of that original group and the original state, and then the memory's there. So is the original experience always part of the memory, no matter how many times you've eaten a tomato? Well, so that, that raises uh, a really interesting question. There, there are a number of theories about memory, and one of the ones that is gaining currency is called the multiple trace memory theory. And this goes back to an old idea from the late 1800s by the Gestalt psychologists who believed that everything you experience leaves a chemical residue in the brain. And what we now believe, or at least if you follow this model as I do, the multiple trace model, is that everything you experience lays down a trace in your memory. Mm. A weak one, perhaps, but the trace is there. So every time you bite into a tomato, that's a new trace. It lives alongside of all the other tomatoes you've bitten into. To bring it around to music, every time you hear a favorite song, um, you're laying down a new trace for the experience in the moment, but it's also connected to every other time you've heard that song. That's interesting. And you're bringing it all up. Now, most of us can't bring up every single neuron in exactly the same configuration it was in when you originally experienced it. Right. When a memory's hazy or fuzzy or not quite there, what seems to be happening is you just don't have enough neurons in the, in the pot, in the bucket yet. This explains something to me why every time I walk into a dressing room, I have a momentary <laughs> feeling of anxiety before I go through the door. Because <laughs> in my early career, I was in so many dressing rooms that smelled like piss and cigarettes. <laughs> and so I'm afraid it's going to be dirty and smelly. And I went, oh, it's nice. But all of those old memories yeah. are coming to re-traumatize me. That seems to be the case with all our memories, that they, we, we're simultaneously experiencing the new thing and its connections with the old thing. And one of the things that is feature of the human brain is it's a magnificent change detector. It's not so good at noticing when things are the same, but it's exquisitely sensitive to changes. So if you walk in through your front door every day and you turn the handle and it feels the same way that it's felt every other time, you tend not to notice it. Right. That one day when it feels a little bit looser, you notice it because it's a change. Your brain is instantly comparing the perception of the handle right now to the hundreds of other times wow. it's felt the handle. You pick up your guitar, and even if you don't have perfect pitch, you'll know if it's been tuned down because you're, it, sure. you know, you're, you're, you're experiencing what you're hearing now and all those traces of what an A more or less... More or less sounds like. Right. right. So most guitarists, most instrumentalists, even if they lack absolute pitch, can tune their instrument pretty close. Well, sure, I can, yeah. yeah. I think everybody can, musician. Speaking of that, shall we do another song? Sure. You want to do Dance with the Tiger? Sure. This is one of my favorite songs of yours. Thank you. The, the beautiful melody. This is a song I wrote with um, John Stewart, who was a great songwriter, one of my songwriting mentors, actually. And uh, he had an unbelievable career. He was with the Kingston Trio for a time, and he wrote a big hit record for Stevie Nicks, and he's, he wrote Daydream Believer for the Monkees. He's quite a guy. And this is from your album, Interiors. Yes.
Every woman and man lies the seed of the fear. Just how alone are all who live here? Denying the fear is the name of the game. Forgiving the fear is so innocent. I forgot that line. Forgiving the fear. song about perception. One of the things I've been thinking about for the last few years is um, why we have music in the first place. Because we would die (laughs) if we didn't. (laughs) What do you think it is that music uh, conveys that isn't conveyed in other ways? What is it that you feel you you get or give uniquely through the medium of music? I don't know. I I mean, talking about that is like talking about the inside of your cells or the way you think, your own thought processes, how could you step outside it and be objective enough to talk about it? It's very hard for me to put words to that, except to say that it's about ancestral memory and the present and the future, that it's about uh, love and the intelligent expression of love without sentimentality, one would hope. And it's there are those the, Beach Boys songs you're trying to There are those Beach Boys right? songs, right. There, you know, it's not just about emotional expression, though. If it were just about emotional expression, it would be toddler's paintings in a nursery school. It's also about intelligent craft and bringing life experience to songs. This is why I'm so such a, you know, proponent of real songs. I think I have these fears sometimes that Real songwriting will end up like divining water with a stick or something. You'll visit it in the Smithsonian, but nobody will really do it anymore. Um, So that's I'm always excited when I hear a young person writing real songs. They're important. They're part of our, like I said, our ancestral memory. I think the way we have music today, you know, 21st century, 20th century, is very different than the way music was propagated and experienced and enjoyed for most of our history as humans. I mean, for one thing, I mean, there are a number of interesting differences between music as we've all had it in our lives, most of us, and the way our ancestors would have had it. Mm -hmm. So even if you go back just 120 years ago, if you wanted to hear music, you had to play it yourself or find someone who would play it for you. You didn't have any mechanical or reproduction device that would play you know, a master performance. The player piano first, and then later the Edison cylinder created this right. kind of artificial world where you could preserve some artificial, you know, historically speaking, where you're going to capture a single performance of a song and play that back thousands of times. And that's kind of weird historically, right? Because Well, it, it uh, indicated where we were going as a culture, right? Obsessions and compulsions and yep. addictions and... And I think, you know, even 120 years ago, most people made music. Sitting around with the family, there wasn't TV, there wasn't radio. Right. One of the ways you entertained yourself was playing music with one another. And going back, for most of our history as a species, humans have been around for about 150,000 years, give or take, you know, right? And 
We've only had writing. We've only had written language uh, for 5,000 years or so. So for most of our history, um, we weren't able to preserve knowledge by writing it down. And yet there was still important things that had to be preserved. And this gets to your point about ancestral memory, I think. You know, our ancient ancestors, our hunter-gatherer ancestors, the humans who left the cover of the trees and um, went out along the savanna, they still had to remember things like which plants were poisonous, uh, where the water was, and, you know, don't, fr don't drink from that well over there. Mm -hmm. So-and-so's uncle did once, and they killed him because the tribe that lives on that side of the hill, they're very territorial about that well. You know, and what anthropology tells us is that this kind of knowledge tend to be, tended to be enmeshed in, in, in songs because our ancestors realized that you know, just telling a story or just having the words wasn't enough. Right. You, would, you would forget the details, or you'd forget the nuance, or you wouldn't be able to convey the emotion of it. The marriage of words and music was able to preserve all of this information. Preserve it in your memory. It's lullabies are really interesting to me, and Scottish lullabies in particular are incredibly dark, and they're about death and battle and daddy going away and dying and sword fights and you know everything. And it's amazing to me that women would sing these songs to their babies um, about these bloody battles and their dad getting killed and everything but it was a way to preserve what happened and they put them to these haunting melancholy melodies that you couldn't forget that are still pa passed down today I wrote an article about lullabies for Martha Stewart Living once and I had to research all of these lullabies and it just it shocked me how dark the Celtic lullabies were well I mean even, even the lullaby that, that you and I probably grew up with when the bow breaks, the baby will fall. Right, right. <laughs> Down comes the cradle, baby and all. Right, but there's I mean, no blood <laughs> there. You gotta, gotta well, no, the, the baby just breaks his blood. neck or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, those lullabies are important. I love them. Yeah, and, and there is this sense of commonality, of unity, that everybody in your culture is hearing the same songs. Right, and knows the same story. And composers such right. as yourself draw on those traditions, right? When you, when you write a song, you're able to draw on a common vocabulary of chords and melody and themes, lyrical themes. Right. The part about ancestral memory interests me in that way, too, in the actual DNA that may have been changed by centuries of songs. You know, like my father's family were Scottish, and he had it traced back to the 12th century in Scotland. And it made sense to me why I love Celtic music so much, why it moves me to tears almost every time. And... Um, the transition of Celtic music to Appalachian music to country music, you know, that thread that goes through all of it. Actually, Elizabethan Celtic country. That maybe that there's actually storage somewhere other than present memory, that it's in the body or in the brain somewhere in the cells. That may be a little bit woo-woo, ding-ding for you. But <laughs> there, there, from an evolutionary standpoint... Yes, tell me about that. <laughs> Bring us back to Earth. <laughs> we, we, yeah, we could talk about cellular memory. For, cellular memory. For, or the collective unconscious. I mean, that's not so yeah. far out, right? Well, you know, there is this interesting thing that um, musicians talk about how the music is in the fingers. Yeah. Right? If you haven't played a song for a while, it seems as though your fingers yeah. take over. Yeah. I think, and I don't mean to step on any sacred ground here, but I think that that's an illusion that evolution has brought us. I don't think the memory is actually in your fingers because the fingers are controlled by specific circuits in the brain. Both the feedback that you get from the sense of touch of what it feels like to touch something and the control of them. 
I haven't done the experiment, but I think if you scooped somebody's brain out of their head, they wouldn't be able to play the guitar or the piano anymore. <laughs> so Stay away from that experiment. <laughs> well, I, that makes sense. I mean, but And yet, especially among classical pianists, I've had the uh, great privilege of being able... One of the things that my popular books have, have been able to do is, is they've opened up a lot of doors for me to, to get to talk with people mm -hmm. that I otherwise wouldn't get to, to talk with. And I've been able to, to um, talk with a number of great conductors and classical pianists. And among the classical pianists, especially the ones that are doing, you know, specializing in Beethoven and Chopin, there's this uh, difficult repertoire, not just difficult mechanically, but very difficult emotionally. Yeah. There's this overwhelming view that when they learn a piece, their fingers are learning it. And they don't accept that it's anywhere other than their fingers. And they mm, say, oh, I, I don't believe that. I mean, I've heard Chopin's nocturnes played by many different people, and they're not all the same. No. Uh, 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 but to the extent that it's in the individual, right? There, it's in the individual. No two people yeah. sound the same. Right. It, you know, you have a, a beautiful guitar there. If I were to play it, I wouldn't sound like you. I mean, you, you have your sound, and it's independent of what you're playing. And Arthur Rubinstein could go from piano to piano to piano. It's not like he toured with his own piano all the time. Sure. It still sounded like him. And uh, a friend of mine who was a recording engineer said uh, that he had seen Rubinstein play on an old upright that was out of tune. And It still sounded like him? Rubinstein. Love right. that. Love that. In fact, uh, I heard this story about how Paul McCartney was rooting around um, the basement of the Hit Factory, and there was this old upright bass that was all cracked and warped, and one of the technicians picked it up, who was a bass player, and started to play a few notes, and it just sounded like crap, and he was about to drop it. McCartney picks it up before it hits the ground. Sure. And it sounds like... Do you know that? It's, it's interesting. I did this show at the Library of Congress with uh, Mark O'Connor, who's... You um, were there the week before I was. Place dropper. <laughs> um, and Mark is, I'm, I don't know if you all know him, but he's an incredibly accomplished violinist and he can play everything from, he knows, he's a classical violinist, but he can also play, authentically play roots music oh, yeah. and Appalachian yeah. music yeah. and bluegrass and all of that. So Mark and I do this show together that's part classical and part my work. We've done it about six times. So we did it at the Library of Congress. And they had this $15 million priceless violin in the vaults there. And they only let it out for a very select few people, and they brought it out so that Mark could play it in this show. And um, it was absolutely gorgeous, but Mark was kind of decrying that the instrument wasn't played more often because it does lose something. The instrument itself loses something by not being played. If it's meant to be played and it's a perfect instrument, I mean, that's well, a metaphor for everything, isn't it? And you don't play it, you know? You're talking about love? I'm talking about all of it. <laughs> but, well, that's, I mean, the physicists uh, even agree with that. that yeah. the, wood, uh, the wood closes up if it doesn't have the... They laughed when you said physicist. I, know, I wonder why. <laughs> Is there, like, you know, turf wars between the neuros <laughs> and the physicists? I'd love it if there were. I'd want to know more about that. I asked Brian Green if I could sit in on his class, and he kind of said, well, sure, but, you, you know, it, it is a real class. Like, for <laughs> graduate students, I don't think you'd get much out of it, so I didn't go. You can come to my class. Probably the same condition. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, well, I was going to say about the fingers, though, is that although individual musicians have a sound, I, I just to make the to finish the point, I don't think it's literally in the fingers. In the fingers I think right. it's an illusion that evolution has given us, and I think evolution brings us a number of illusions. Um, among them is that um, when we see things, this isn't true of all of us, but many of us feel that when we see something, it's out there in the world, mm -hmm. but when we hear something, it's, it's inside you. Yeah. And taste is a very immediate sense, right? I mean, when you taste something, it feels like it's in your body. Mm -hmm. When you smell something, it feels somewhat like it's in your body. But um, vision seems to be out there as opposed to sound, which it seems very, feel very intimate. And in a sense, this is an illusion that it's evolution not, is... It's, and it's not a hard and fast rule either. Right. Be I be the reason I know that is because I had... Maybe I still have. I'm not sure since the surgery. But I, I had synesthesia, a mild case of it, and it was only two senses. It was um, sound and color. And, and you don't have it anymore? I haven't had it since the surgery, so I'm, I'm curious to see if it comes back. And, and how did your synesthesia is a blending of the senses. It's believed now that all infants start out synesthetic. Most of the work on this uh, you can read about in a wonderful book by Sidovich. He actually has three books out now. But it's a merging of the senses where when one sensory receptor is impinged upon, the brain doesn't differentiate the source. So you might touch something, and you know, to the infant brain or to the synesthete, it's not clear that you've been touched as opposed to smelled something or heard something. And right. um, people with strong cases of it will report that um, when they hear the note C... They, their visual field is filled, say, with the color brown. And this isn't, this isn't metaphorical. This isn't like some a poet Yeah, that's the this. point. It's not yeah. metaphorical. Right. If I saw a bright red, the sound of it would be unbearable. You know, and I sometimes would um, imagine certain colors to calm myself down because I could hear them. It's kind of sad to lose that. Maybe I haven't lost it. I don't know. But I can't believe I'm telling these people this. Some of the great... I didn't composers. tell my husband that until about three years ago. You were afraid he'd... I was uh, afraid he'd think I was a freak and, like, <laughs> <laughs> be out of here. Some of the great composers were synesthetes. Is that right? Yeah. I wonder which senses they had crossed, though. Usually, they're usually um, what are called sound, color, chromesthetes. Yeah. Uh, but they're all different kinds. I worked with somebody who was a, um, a synesthete who, when she heard certain consonants, experienced certain tastes in her mouth. Mm, I've heard about that. Yeah. I wouldn't like that one. Do you want to play another tune? Do you want to play your tune? Well, not yet. You're working up to it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to play What We Really Want? Mm -hmm. This is about longing, and it's also from my record, Interiors. And it's called What We Really Want. to make ourselves pay for something we've never done through the best parts of life away on street talk strangers and drugs and what we really want is love what we really need is love This is a nice guitar you're letting me play. Yeah, There it must is. be a story behind this. Um, I got it at Matt Umanov's on Bleecker Street about 25 years ago. It's about the end of the story. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm going to tune while you talk. So in keeping with the, uh, the theme of the five senses, I, I was talking about some of the things that I think are different about hearing from other senses. Another thing I think that's evolutionarily important about the sense of hearing is that it works even when it's dark. And uh, if you think about one of the most primal interactions that humans have, the mother and the child, sound is a very important part of the mother comforting the developing infant. Uh, and the mother can do this even in the dark, and sound travels around corners. So, you know, back in our cave-dwelling years, uh, the infant could be in one part of the cave and the mother in another, or during hunter-gathering years, the mother could set the infant down and still call to it. She could still hear it, even if she wasn't in a line of sight. If you're out on the, the broad savanna and somebody's trying to get your attention to warn you of something, they might be waving your arms, but if there's an enormous visual field, you might not see them. But if they clap or whistle or yell, they'll be able to grab your attention. So sound has a number of important properties. We believe that the human sense of sound is related to a sensory receptor that fish have, um, which is on the sides of their heads, and it's a membrane that's sensitive to the vibrations of the, the water. So waves in the water move this thing in and out, much as air waves in the atmosphere move our eardrum in and out. And just to illustrate how extraordinary our sense of hearing is, my colleague and, and, and mentor, Al Bregman at McGill, tells a little story. Imagine that you go up to a lake uh, and... Uh, you grab a stick and you draw a couple of channels out into the shore from the side of the lake, and they fill up with water. And now you place a couple of corks on those trenches or fisher, fisherman's bobs or something. And with your back to the lake, just by watching the bobbing up and down of these floats in the two channels, you have to tell me how many objects are in the lake, whether you know sailboats, rowboats, which direction they're traveling, you know, if there are f how many fish there are, and you'll tell me, well, this is impossible. I, no matter how long I watch these little floats bob up and down in the water, I'm not going to be able to tell you, you know, even if there's one sailboat. I mean, I can try and persuade you that a sailboat moving towards you is going to make a different pattern of ripples in these little channels than a sailboat moving lateral, or, the, you know, a sailboat's going to make a different pattern of ripples than a motorboat. Maybe with years of experience and feedback, you could learn to tell the difference. But to really characterize what's going on in the lake, you'd say that's impossible. And in fact, that's what your eardrums are doing. They're wiggling in and out, and all the information that you get about the auditory environment comes from that pattern of wiggling in and out. So when you're at the symphony and you can pick out an oboe from among all the different instruments... Or sitting in this room, if you can pick out the sound of the air conditioner as distinct from anything else, it, those sounds don't deliver themselves to the eardrum with little tags that say, I'm the air conditioner, mm -hmm. or I'm the oboe. Uh, but through a complex chain of neurochemical events, your eardrums wiggling out and your auditory cortex have to sort of unpack all this and figure mm -hmm. it out. And we do it instantaneously without realizing it. And part of the process is that in the auditory cortex there are believed to be different special purpose modules. There's one part of the brain that simply processes pitch. That's the difference you know, between this and, and that. And all it cares about, the neurons in this region of the brain, they only care about figuring out what the pitch is of a tone. A whole separate group of neurons figure out how loud it is, and a separate group figure out whether it's a guitar or a human voice. Are they the same part of the brain? Maybe not. We're not sure. I I'm mean, not sure. They're, they're probably in the temporal lobe, 
but a widely um, distributed network of neurons. And it all comes together so quickly that you have the impression that, oh, you know, that note, that loudness, that duration, that instrument, it, it feels like it's a package. But it's not. People who have had brain damage can lose one of those modules and not the other. They could lose their sense of pitch, but still... Still, still have rhythm and, and be able to identify instruments. Yeah. Yeah. So what uh, part of the brain organizes sound for you into music? Because some things can, that are not music can be organized as music, I found. Yeah, so uh, if you think of the beginning of that Pink Floyd record, Money, <laughs> where there's this cash register, and there are these sounds that aren't really musical right, sounds. Right. Uh, James Taylor played around with that. Of course, the Beatles played. And this all goes back to a tradition uh, of acousmatic music in the late 1950s with the French composer Pierre Schaeffer, uh, who took found objects like railroad cars and people brushing their teeth and manipulated them into music. And there doesn't seem to be a part of the brain that can say, oh, well, this is music and this isn't. But there does seem to be a part of the brain that I've been studying for the last 10 years in my laboratory that helps organize things in, in time. And that part's in the prefrontal cortex here, right behind, behind your eyebrow. And it goes by, I've been studying this area for about 10 or 12 years, and it has the rather inelegant name of Broadman Area 47. <laughs> and Poetic. What it seems to do is this collection of, of brain tissue seems to be interested in creating predictions for what's going to come next in any kind of temporal pattern. Not just sound. It could be dance. It could be visual signs. Yeah. People who speak sign language are using that part of the brain to make out the different signs. And this, in concert with the music areas, um, seems to be responsible for your expectations for what's going to come next in the music. And I think, just as a, if you'll allow me to speculate, this isn't based on data, but I think that our appreciation for music is intimately bound up in some sense of what's going to come next. And that this part of the brain is trying to figure out what's going to happen next. You know, the thing about music is it's got this pulse, right? So mm -hmm. you know when the next event is going to be. You just don't always know what it's going to be. And it's the job of the composer and the performer to surprise you a little bit. So does the pleasure come from anticipation? I think so. And from those expectations sometimes being rewarded and sometimes violated, right? So if I, if I played a little melody like this, Ba-da-da-da. And then I changed it, and I went, ba-da-da-da. Sort of grabbed your attention a little bit, because I've taken the same pattern, and I've moved it. But if the next compositional move I make is, ba-da-da-da, oh, I've lost you now. I mean, that, that, now it sounds like an exercise. Right. But I could go, ba-da-da-da, ba-da-da-da, ba-da-da, boom. Now I've got you, because I've turned this um, expectation about a kind of a pattern into something different. I've mm -hmm. introduced tonality, I've introduced an expectation that this has to resolve. Then how do you, there are some people who derive a tremendous amount of pleasure from freeform jazz, and some people who don't. And um, so what does that say about the brains of those who do? Well, I guess there's, there's freeform jazz of different kinds. So some of it um, has- Totally unpredictable. Yeah, all right, so- You just start with a, a one chord. Yeah. And then everybody ends up together, hopefully, but what happens in between is unknown. In that respect, it's, it's very exciting, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Do you play that? 
Me? No, yeah. but yeah. I enjoy it. So, and and I think it has something in common. I would I would go out on a limb and say it has something in common with atonal music. Cloud, mm -hmm. you know, 20th century Schoenberg, at least conceptually. Yeah. And something in common with Dadaist visual art, where that I would go with, and something in common with just sheer confidence. One of the ways in which humans differ from one another is that, I mean, of, of all the different, all the ways we differ from one another, one of them is that some of us are more open to new experience yeah. than others, right? So right. this is partly genetic, we believe. Uh, there's a genetic predisposition towards being open to new experience, but you see it in little kids on the playground. They're the adventuresome ones who will climb up to the highest rungs yeah. of the gym and the others who were content down in the sandbox and... You see it in artists. You know, some artists play it safe. Some are pushing the boundaries. And whether you're playing or listening to freeform jazz, it does it express this kind of openness to um, not really having to know where things are going, right, to, right. to live in the moment. I, I think everybody's musical taste is different, but when a piece of music works for you, what I think for anybody, what's happening is the composer has hit that sweet spot yeah. between rewarding your expectations and violating them just enough of the time. If they reward your expectations all the time, you're bored. It's like a Rafi, you know, kids' music. Well, and that's not taking into account the mystical element of it, of just being um, open to just having your catcher's mitt on and letting the inspiration come through you, whatever that is, that muse, that, you know, creative source, and hopefully you've refined your skills enough that you can support catching that with your instincts. Yeah, yeah. There, there is this, this um, I wonder if we could talk more generally about art, because um, mm -hmm. this is a, uh, you've said this in interviews, and, and a lot of artists say this, that when they're creating, they feel um, the great um, novelist, the South African novelist, uh, Katsia, writes about this too. That you, when you're creating, you feel as though it's not coming from you, it's coming through you. That, yeah. that you, know, you, you can't really describe where it's coming from, but it's somewhere out there. Yeah, I've had that experience. If I'm working my brain too much with it and I'm just you know twisting it and turning it, then that experience doesn't exist. But if... I'm open, that experience can happen. So, uh, and, and when you're in that state, you feel as though it's timeless. Yeah, and you feel as though you just, as you say, you put your catcher's mitt up and catch the song. Right. There's a great story about Tom Waits. You know, he's driving and then he gets an idea for a song and he says, um, Can't you see I'm driving? <laughs> <laughs> can you come back later? <laughs> um, which I love. I mean, he, he expressed it. I've always been kind of afraid to, to say that because it sounds, you know, new agey or something. But, I mean, artists for time immemorial have talked about that experience. And what's fascinating to me about that experience, too, is that you, there is a sense of timelessness and the loss of linear time. Yeah, so Chichimahali calls this the flow state. Flow state. Mm, and that's good. Uh, I like that. Athletes talk, athletes yeah. talk about being in the zone, yeah. and computer programmers talk about just forgetting what time it is. You forget to eat. You forget to sleep. Sure. Scientists have this. Sure. Anybody who's uh, in any discipline who's at the top of their game and really functioning you know, at full capacity. And in the artistic case, the additional thing that happens is that um, you find yourself playing things musically or you know painting things or um, saying things lyrically that 
don't really feel completely like you, and yet they're comfortable to you, mm -hmm. right? They feel like it's from some other place. And um, a colleague of mine, Charles Lim, actually did a neuroimaging study. Of what it, happened when that was happening? Well, it, more as, as best as he could get in a, in a laboratory. So uh -huh. he got uh, jazz musicians, traditional jazz musicians, um, improvising while they were in a brain scanner. And what he found is that when they felt that they were improvising well and they were really in it, what shut down was the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. So anybody who creates knows that there's this um, tension between the inspiration and the editing, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea comes, and at some point, whether it's in the moment or a day or two later, you have to sort of look it over and say, yeah, I'm going to keep that, I'm not going to keep right. that. But what improvisers have to do, uh, to some extent, is not be editing too much or they break the flow, right? right? So what he found is that the part of the brain that actually is um, orchestrating or mediating conscious control and direct focus, the part of your brain that is really keeping you on task, the editor, if you will, that part goes offline when they're improvising. That's so interesting. You know, I used to teach a songwriting class, and I found that with young songwriters particularly, the, the thing that would dismantle them most of all is that they brought in their editor too quickly in the process. And then their self-esteem got involved, and they go, I'll never be as good as Bob Dylan, what's the point? But if they could leave the editor out until close to the end of the process, then it was really helpful, and it became an ally. Well, one of the things that we find, uh, again, evolutionarily, when you look at the difference between human brains and the brains of other species, is that we've got this massive prefrontal cortex, this thing that takes up a lot more volume, considering the size of our brains, than in any other species. And you would think, okay, well, there's all this extra brain up there. That must be what's making the music and making the language, and help, you know, and, and it helps us to make, uh, to, you know, schedule our time, and it does square roots and mm -hmm. things like that. But what we now are beginning to believe is that it's not what you would think. It's not that the prefrontal cortex is doing all this stuff for us that other animals can't do, because a lot of what the prefrontal cortex has are GABA receptors and GABA neurons, and GABA is an inhibitory chemical. So the idea is that what the prefrontal cortex does is it gives us an inhibition, which most animals don't have. It allows us to have delayed gratification. It allows us to inhibit things that we might do impulsively, some of us, some of the time. So all that higher thought seems to come not from the prefrontal cortex per se, but from massive connections. You know, we have more, uh, more connections than other species, and mm. out of that comes all the other abilities. In May of 1959, British novelist and physicist C.P. Snow delivered his infamous Two Cultures lecture. What he didn't know was that the gap between science and the humanities he so vividly described would still persist 50 years later. That's why, on May 9, 2009, Science in the City, the Science Communication Consortium, Science Debate 2008, and Discover Magazine bring you Two Cultures in the 21st Century, a full-day conference bringing together visionaries, scientists, authors, and the media to explore the persistence of the two cultures gap and how it can be overcome. Join Pulitzer Prize winner E.O. Wilson, former Congressman John Porter, Segway inventor and entrepreneur Dean Kamen, and many others at this historic event. For more information and tickets, please visit www.nyas.org forward slash two cultures.